Volume Two, Chapter Eleven of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Two, Chapter Eleven. Those who have called the world profane have succeeded in making it so. J. H. Tom. The dreams of youth and love so frequently fade unfulfilled into the light of common day that it is a pleasure to be able to record that Madeline saw the greater part of hers realised. She was received with what she termed éclat in her new neighbourhood. She remarked with complacency that everybody made much too much of her, that she had been quite touched by the enthusiasm of her reception. It was an ascertained fact that she would open the hunt ball with the President, a point on which her maiden meditation had been much exercised the Duchess of Southwark was among the first to call upon her. If that lady's principal motive in doing so was curiosity to see what kind of wife Sir Henry, or, as he was called in his own county, the Solicitor-General, had at length procured, Madeleine was comfortably unaware of the fact. After that single call, the duration of which was confined to nine minutes, Madeleine spoke of the Duchess as kindness and cordiality itself. She was invited to stay at Alvary, and afterwards to fill her house for a fancy ball in October, in honour of the coming of age of Lord Elver, the Duke's eldest son, and chief thorn in the flesh, a young man of great promise, when you got to know him, as Madeline averred, in which case few shared that advantage with her. Other invitations poured in. The neighbourhood was really surprised at the grace and beauty of the bride, considering it was soon rumoured that she was a saint as well, that she read prayers every morning at Cantaloupe, which the stablemen were expected to attend, and that she taught in the Sunday school. The ardent young vicar of the parish, who had hitherto languished unsupported and misunderstood at Sir Henry's door, in the flapping draperies that so well become the church militant, was enthusiastic about her. She was what he called a true woman. Those who use this expression best know what it means processions and monster candles, crucifixes, and other ingredients of the pharmacopoeia of religion, swam before his mental vision. The little illegal side-altar to which his two crosses, namely the church-wardens, had objected, but without which his soul could not rest in peace, was reinstated after a conversation with Madeline. A promise on that lady's part to embroider an altar-cloth for the same was noised abroad. Sir Henry was jubilant at his wife's popularity, which lost nothing from her own comments on it. Although nearly six months had elapsed since his marriage, he was still in a state of blind adoration, an adoration so blind that none of the ordinary events by which disillusion begins had any power to affect him. He was not conscious that once or twice during the season in London he had been duped, that the jealousy which had flamed up so suddenly against Archie Tempest had more grounds than the single note he found in his wife's pocket, when in a fit of clumsy fondness he turned out all its contents on her knee, solely to cogitate a wonder over them. He had a habit, which tried her more than his slow faculties had any idea of, of examining Madeline's belongings. His admiring curiosity had no suspicion in it. He liked to look at them solely because they were hers. One day, shortly after their arrival at Cantaloupe, when he was sitting in stolid, inconvenient sympathy in her room, whether she had vainly retreated from him on the plea of a headache, 
he occupied himself by opening the drawers of her dressing-table, one after the other, investigating with aboriginal interest small boxes of hairpins, curling-irons, and that various assortment of feminine gear which the hairdresser elegantly designates as toilet requisites. At last he peeped into a box where, carefully arranged side by side, were the dearest of curls on tortoiseshell combs which he had often seen on his wife's head, and some smaller, much becrimped bodies which filled him with wondering dislike, hair caricatured, frisette. "'What are you doing?' said Madeline faintly, lying on the sofa with her back to him, holding her salts to her nose. "'Oh, if only he would go away, this large, dreadful man, and leave her half an hour in peace, without hearing him clear his throat and sniff.' On the contrary, he came and sat down by her, chuckling, holding the curls and frisette in his thick hands. She dropped her smelling bottle and looked at them in an outraged silence. Was there then no sanctity, no privacy in married life? Was everything about her to be made common and profane? She hated Sir Henry at that moment. As long as he had remained an invoice accompanying the arrival of coveted possessions, she had felt only a vague uneasiness about him. Directly he became, after the wedding, a heavy bill demanding cash payment to account rendered, she found that the marriage market is not a very cheap one after all. Sir Henry was not the least chagrined at a discovery which might have tried the devotion of a more romantic lover. "'Why, Maddy,' he said, "'you're much too young and pretty to wear this sort of toggery. Leave them to the old dowagers, my dear.' And he dropped them in the fire. She saw them burn, but she made no sign. Presently, however, when he had left her, she began to cry feebly, for even feminine fortitude has its limits. She was in reality satisfied with her marriage, on the whole, though she was wiping away a few natural tears at this moment. But in this class of union there is generally one item which is found almost intolerable, namely the husband. He really was the only drawback in this case. The furniture, the house, the southern aspect of the reception-rooms, everything else was satisfactory. The park was handsomer than she had expected, and she had not known there was a silver dinner-service. It had been a love-match as far as that was concerned. If Henry himself had only been different, Madeline often reflected, if he had not been so red, and if he had had curly hair, or any hair at all. But whose lot has not some secret sorrow? So Madeline cried a little, and then wiped her eyes, and fell to thinking of her gown for the fancy ball at Alvary next month. She called to mind Di's height and regal figure with a pang. Perhaps after all she had been unwise in asking her dear friend, whom it would be difficult to eclipse, for this particular ball. Madeline was under the impression that she was having die out of good nature. This was her tame, caged motive, kept for the inspection of others, especially of die. Nevertheless, there were others which were none the less genuine because they did not wait to have salt put on their tails, and invariably flew away at the approach of strangers. Madeline had not remembered to be good-natured, until a certain obstacle to the completion of her ball-party, as she intended it, had arisen. The subject of young men was one which he had approached with the utmost delicacy, for, according to Sir Henry, all young men, at least all good-looking ones, were fools and oafs whom he was not going to have wounding his birds. 
she agreed with him entirely, but reminded him of the Duchess's solemn injunction to bring a party of even numbers. Sir Henry at last gave in so far as to propose an elderly colonel. Madeleine in turn suggested Lord Hemsworth, who was allowed to be a good sort, and was invited. "'Then we ought to have Miss Di Tempest, if we have Hemsworth,' said Sir Henry, blowing like a grampus, as was his manner, in moments of inspiration. "'I'm quite a matchmaker now I marry myself. Ask her to meet him, Maddy. She's your special pal, ain't she?' Madeline felt that she required a strength greater than her own to bear with a person who says ain't and a good sort, and designates her lady friend as a pal. She pressed the silver knob of her pencil to her lips. There was, she remarked, no one whom she would like to have so much as die, but Mr. Lumley was her next suggestion, and Sir Henry slapped himself on the leg and said he was the very thing. "'We want one other man.' said Madeline reflectively, after a few more had passed through the needle's eye of Sir Henry's criticism. "'Let me see. Oh, there's Captain Tempest. He dances well.' "'I won't have him,' said Sir Henry at once, his eyes assuming their most prawn-like expression. "'He may have his cousin, if you like, the owl with the jowl, as Lumley calls him, Tempest of Overley.' "'He's sure to be asked to the house itself, being a relation,' said Madeline, dropping the subject of Archie instantly. She did not recur to it again. But after their return home from the visit to the Hemsworths, of which she had met Di, she told her husband she had invited Di for the fancy ball, as he had wished her to do. "'Me?' said Sir Henry Redding. "'Lord bless me, what do I want with her?' And it was some time before he could be made to recollect what he had said nearly a month ago about asking Di to meet Lord Hemsworth. "'You forget your own wishes more quickly than I do,' she said, putting her hand in his. He did, by Jove, he did. And he bent over the little hand and kissed it, while she noticed how red the back of his neck was. When he became unusually apoplectic in appearance, as at this moment, Madeline always caught a glimpse of herself as a young widow, and the idea softened her towards him. If he were once really gone, without any possibility of return, she felt that she could have said, Poor Henry. The only awkward part about having asked Di said Madeline, after a pause, is that Mrs. Courtney doesn't allow her to visit alone. "'Well, my dear, ask Mrs. Courtney. I like her. She's always been very civil to me.' She had indeed. "'I don't like her very much myself,' said Madeline. "'She's so worldly, and I think she's made die so, and she would be the only older person. You know you decided it should be a young party this time. It's very awkward die not being able to come alone at her age.' She evidently wanted me to ask her brother to bring her, who, she almost told me, was anxious to meet Miss Crupps, the carpet heiress, but I did not quite like to ask him without your leave. "'Oh, ask him by all means,' said Sir Henry, entirely oblivious of his former refusal. "'After that poor little girl, is he? Well, we'll sit out together and watch the love-making, eh?' Madeline experienced a tremor, wholly unmixed with compunction at gaining her point. She would have been aware, if she had read it in a book, that any one who had acted as she had done had departed from the truth in suggesting that Di could not visit alone. She would have felt also that it was reprehensible in the extreme to invite to her house a man who had secretly, though not without provocation, made love to her since her marriage. But just in the same way that what we regret as conceit in others 
we perceive to be a legitimate self-respect in ourselves, so Madeline, as on previous occasions, saw things very differently. She was incapable of what she called a low view. She had often, frankly, told herself that she took a deep interest in Archie. She put his initials against some of her favourite passages in her Morocco manual. She prayed for him on his birthday, and sometimes when she woke up and looked at her luminous cross at night. She believed that she had a great influence for good over him, which it was her duty to use. She was sincere in her wish to proselytise, but the sincerity of an insincere nature is like the kernel of a deaf nut, a mere shred of undeveloped fibre. What Madeline wished to believe became a reality to her. Gratification of a very common form of vanity was a religious duty. She wrote to Archie with a clear conscience, and, when he accepted, had a box of autumn hats sent down from London. End of Volume 2 Chapter 11